Hello, and welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. I'm Christina Chan. And I'm David Ball. This is the podcast of the BC Echo on Substance Use, about substance use care and treatment. Addiction Practice Pod is produced on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. In saying this, we note that the ongoing criminalization, discrimination, and institutionalization against people who use drugs disproportionately harms Indigenous peoples. Ending drug-related harms means addressing racism and colonialism. I'm Christina Chan, Director of Education and Clinical Activities at the BC Centre on Substance Use. I'm a registered nurse with 15 years of experience working clinically in primary care, mental health and substance use. I also have personal experience supporting families through the mental health and substance use systems of care. Hi, Christina. Great to do this with you. I'm a journalist and have reported for a decade about substance use, mental health and public health policies. As return listeners already know, this is a podcast for healthcare providers. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. When it comes to treatment for substance use disorders, there's no silver bullet. Medications can be important to support people with their recovery goals, But psychosocial treatments can provide a different kind of support and ensure medications provide the most benefit possible. In this episode, we're talking to Sarah Irvine about psychosocial treatment approaches. Sarah is a substance use counselor working at a substance use and mental health center in Vancouver. We're also going to hear from Sakani, who shares her lived experience with treatment, recovery, and land-based healing. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Sarah. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, absolutely. I am a concurrent disorders counselor. I work in healthcare at a mental health and substance use site in Vancouver, and I support folks who are experiencing mental health uh, and substance use concerns and are looking to explore and talk about it. So supporting people that are on kind of all all places in their journey who are really just wanting to explore and discuss uh, their substance use. Do you have a particular approach that you take with patients? We'll get into some more details, but is there kind of a model that you follow or what kind of things, what's your starting point? My own personal philosophy is just really kind of being as person-centered and strength-based as uh, possible in my work, really approaching the person where they're at uh, and supporting them with whatever their self-identified goals are, just really coming from an anti-oppressive and trauma-informed lens in the work. We use a lot of motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy, DBT skills, mindfulness, lots of planning around relapse prevention, getting people connected to community connections and hobbies and other things that are important to them. So I think the topic of today's podcast being psychosocial approaches to substance use is definitely very near and dear to my heart because it's definitely a lot of what we do in addition to kind of traditional therapeutic approaches to counseling is also kind of getting people engaged with things that they care about because that definitely is related to substance use. Thanks, Sarah. That's um, really awesome. What I kind of hear through what you're sharing too is like integrating kind of the philosophies that come through like concepts like harm reduction as well as like working in 
culturally safe ways with clients. When you're kind of doing this individualized strengths approach with a, a client, how do you know if someone's a good candidate kind of for working with you or that they're like, do you take into consideration a certain amount of readiness or would you say that like you could kind of work alongside anyone walking through your door? We are able to support people with wherever they're at, whoever comes through the door. I think that readiness and who defines readiness to me is really about the person who uses substances and their own experiences of defining what that looks like for them. I think that for me, I kind of work with folks along the spectrum of, you know, harm reduction or just exploring their use, what using substances means to them, what it, it is, how it's working for them, how it's not working for them, just general conversations about exploring use all the way to abstinence. And I think all of it is equally important because I think that abstinence as a goal is actually not actually a goal for many of the folks that I work alongside. And so anybody that is ready to have a discussion about their substance use, I would say is a good fit for counseling. Just recognizing the trauma that, that some people have experienced at the hands of the healthcare system and how counseling sometimes can build trust and rapport that can encourage people to continue to also access other types of services related to their health. I think what's so important that you've just acknowledged too is that we have to consider the larger kind of social and structural pieces which impact the lives of the clients that we work with and that mediate the experience that people have in terms of engaging with healthcare and substances, right? I'm just wondering, Sarah, if you could maybe talk a bit about how we can best support our clients as well as clinicians to navigate barriers to access psychosocial care, including counseling. So kind of pieces around cost or wait times or thinking about rural remote communities too, where we have we don't have as many healthcare providers um, available. What would you kind of suggest are things that could support both? I wish that I had a magic wand to all of this. I feel like I wish I had a magic wand every single uh, day in my practice and also want to acknowledge that I am practicing counseling in Vancouver and definitely find and experience challenges and barriers working alongside folks who use substances all the time. So I can't even imagine how folks feel in rural and remote communities in terms of wait times and in terms of access to uh, services and supports. Some things that I definitely have noticed as challenges and barriers that folks experience um, in my practice is just when people are ready for treatment or ready for detox, obviously wait times being difficult for that and wait times uh, for counseling and costs associated with counseling. In addition, I think that there uh, can be challenges in accessing treatment beds depending on what your income situation is. I also think that it's important to consider safety considerations for our LGBTQ2S folks who want to go into treatment and also recognize recognizing that most treatment centers are divided by a self-identified gender and that that doesn't necessarily create space for uh, non-binary or trans folks, spaces for them to feel safe in accessing treatment. Beyond, you know, wishing for a magic wand, I think really just seeing people holistically, really just recognizing that there are so many different things that provide people, you know, meaning and healing in their journey. I have a person that I'm supporting right now and 
He is not interested in 12-step. He's not interested in every any recovery-type groups. He was going to the hospital about every three or four days for withdrawal management, for alcohol. And after a three-week stay in the hospital, he is cooking as his recovery. That is his recovery. He is making sourdough bread. He has a garden. He's taking photos of all of his fruits and vegetables. And I think that is the healing piece for him. That is what's giving him meaning and purpose and healing. And absence obviously is his goal, but I think just really kind of opening our brains and thinking about, you know, where does somebody live? What is their income situation? What are their relationships? Are they isolated because of COVID? What do they like to do? Who is around them? Are they working? Do they want to work? Do they want to volunteer? Are they connected to other people who are in similar situations? Are they connected to culturally informed, you know, services or cultural healing? I mean, I think all of these things are important considerations in addition to just, you know, focusing on wait lists around counseling. I think we can also focus on other aspects of self. I love the idea of counseling as baking bread, a therapy. So I wanted to ask about, you know, for a clinician, so someone who's not in the counseling therapy world, frontline health providers who are encountering a patient, want to refer them. Sounds like a lot of research would have to go into knowing what are the possible barriers to find that might be inappropriate or appropriate for this person. So do I need to go to the First Nations Health Authority to find out counselors that are on their list? Is this person going to be averse to a social worker because of past with a child welfare system? Are they inclined to avoid 12 steps or AA? Those are all really important, I think, considerations. Can you sort of talk about what are the modalities or counselors available along those lines? And what would you suggest to clinicians or clients considering when making a referral like you talked about? There are free and low-cost counseling options through some nonprofit and counseling agencies. The ones I know about, again, are through the Lower Mainland and just want to acknowledge my kind of Vancouver-centric kind of bias in that. Their wait lists often are long, given the fact that low-cost and sliding-scale counseling is few and far between in the Lower Mainland and kind of range from... $30 to $80, $90. So there is still some cost associated with many of the counseling options. Most of them are sliding scale and not necessarily free. Through the health authority, there is uh, substance use counseling or concurrent disorders counseling for folks that self-identify that they want to explore their substance use. I would also uh, suggest, you know, in terms of assessing if somebody is ready. From my perspective, I think it is, you know, not my responsibility to decide if somebody is ready. If we hear any kind of inkling of, you know, change or motivation in somebody talking about maybe I don't want to be using substances in this way, I think that that is an opportunity for a professional to kind of explore. Okay, great. Like, have you ever thought about counseling? Have you ever thought about, you know, going to a meeting? Have you ever thought about talking to somebody? about your substance use. And I think there are also so many people who are using substances that are invisible because of COVID-19. There are a lot of people that are using substances that, you know, are using substances as a way to cope and are isolated. And I think that it's a really important thing to explore where people are at with their with their substance use and, and any kind of inkling of them wanting to chat about it, I think is an opportunity. That's really great, Sarah. What are some things to consider if I want to pick a counselor knowing that fit is important, that relational trust is really crucial in kind of moving anywhere with your goals. Yeah, it's a bit of an al alphabet soup out there for a doctor looking at MBCT and CBT and EMDR and... 
not only for doctors, but also just for like the folks themselves. I think it can be really difficult to kind of navigate figuring out what, what they, what they want as well. I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I would say that in terms of exploring what somebody is uh, looking for, I think, and, and who they're looking for, I think I, I completely understand that it is a lot to explore and also memorize. I think that that figuring out what's, what's the perfect fit for somebody definitely is challenging and navigating the systems, I think, is, is challenging because it's hard to have a directory of everything that's happening going on in our heads. I think, you know, BC211 and some of those resource guides are really helpful to kind of support people with finding what is local to them because you can search by city or by area and also by topic depending on what they tell you is important to them. I think that that can give you some really important information before making an appointment and then telling this person your life story when they maybe are not the right fit because not everybody is the right fit for every person. Could you give us a very brief description of what contingency management is? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I'm the absolute expert. So Christina, if you have anything you want to add, but I would say that it's an evidence-based approach based on behavior modification. And it's encouraging positive behavior changes by reinforcing that behavior through a reward. Uh, The reward is often in relation to substance use, either reducing or being abstinence from substances. The only thing I would add is that like the intention of the reward is intended to kind of replace the reward feeling you get from using a substance. And so that as you kind of accomplish these goals, that good feeling is kind of uh, intended to replace what that substance would have provided. And that's kind of the relationship with the behavior management piece. So contingency management is like a psychosocial approach that actually has a lot of evidence behind it in terms of decreasing substance use. And I'm just wondering if uh, you could talk a little bit about like how you see that may fit in supporting substance use care. I think that contingency management absolutely um, has a place in substance use services. It can be so effective for folks. When I was working in a program that had a contingency management aspect to it, it was with youth and young adults who were living in mental health and substance use housing. And we had a group and the goals that youth were invited to make could be in any aspect of their lives that seemed to be motivating to have the kind of reward aspect of contingency management to be part of a group where other people were also meeting their goals. I know that there are programs within the Lower Mainland that have been incredibly successful based on contingency management. I think that it is only one piece of the pie in terms of, you know, we need to recognize the power dynamic that it holds and like it definitely can be a little bit complicated and like is important to kind of reflect on the role that it kind of holds in other people's lives and also is just one aspect of recovery. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did too. We really appreciate your time, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for sharing both of your expertise. It was really wonderful to just to be able to have this type of space to focus on something that, you know, I think all three of us are really passionate about. So thank you. Sarah Irving is a substance use counselor working at a substance use and mental health center in Vancouver. Finally today, we'll be hearing from Sikani. Sikani is an Indigenous person with lived experiences of substance use, psychosocial treatments, and cultural healing.
My name is Sikani Dakhouse. I'm from the Glasden Nation, which is colonially known as Tache Reserve. And it's in central, north central BC. I'm from the Frog Clan. I'm a transgendered woman. I identify as two-spirited now. I am somebody who has a lot of lived experience around drug use, around sex work, and around navigating the, the healthcare system in many different facets. People always say, like, you hit rock bottom. I feel like I was at rock bottom before I started using substances and that substances really carried me to a point to where I, I wasn't, I was like, you know, because when you are when you hit rock bottom, there are only ways up from there. So through my drug use, I often found that um, it really saved me from a, a really dark place because I, you know, I probably would have did something a lot worse to myself than what I already done, you know, just due to, due to like post-traumatic stress disorder, I have complex PTSD. I was at a really low point and I was alone for three days on the downtown east side, I was homeless and I had been up and I was alone for the first time. I was doing survival sex work to live and it started getting foggy and a man came out of the fog like and, and it, it's weird because I looked at him and I, I could see myself in him. And I was like, who is this person? You know, do I know him? Are they a relative? And he said, you know what? Everything's going to be okay. He looked me in the eye and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, everything's going to be okay. Things are going to get better. He said, you just have to keep walking. And then he walked away into the fog and was gone. And I was still alone for that whole day. And I thought about that that whole day. Like, what does that mean? Indigenous folks, we believe our ancestors are with us all the time. And that they come, they come to us when we really need them. So after this experience, I walked around that whole day thinking about that incident, about, about what he said. And, and I thought, what does that mean for me? I decided that I would try detox. I went to detox and then I went to treatment for, I think, four months. I didn't finish the program, but like gained a lot of experience and knowledge there. And then I went to a recovery house. And then from there, I went back into the only place that I could afford rent was the downtown east side. So I went straight back to my stomping grounds and started using drugs again. It wasn't like before. It was different. The second time around when I came back, I started using more safely and I started using less and I started using it as a more of a recreation thing instead of an uh, everyday necessity. I went to detox and it was it, it was a bit of a struggle. We often would have be piled on top of each other. Like the the one I went to, it was like bunk beds and it was like a dorm. So it was like, you know, there would be like 10 people in this one area and two beds each. And there was really no like space to get away from people. Everything is taken away from you. You're given a place to sleep. You don't have a choice. You're given food. You know, food that you may not like when I would detox myself. I would always, like, spoil myself a little bit, you know, if I was at home and detoxing when I finally stopped using drugs and, you know, 10 years ago. I detoxed, I did it by myself at home and I would just, you know, order Uber Eats or I would get food that I actually like and enjoy. And it made that whole process easier because there's definitely something with endorphins in the brain. You know, if I'm happy and I'm eating something that makes me feel happy, then that's a good thing, you know? And I think when going through detox, that 
those things need to be kind of amplified. It's like, okay, well, what's going to make this process easy and happy and an enjoyable experience for you? It is very dehumanizing to go to a space like that. It's like those things have to be a choice for people. People have to want to stop. And I think um, returning agency to people in that situation from the get-go, for the, at the detox, that's when we're going to start giving them back their agency in certain aspects, like how are they going to sleep? What are they going to eat? What kind of products do they need to make this easier? Like mud masks? You know, like some there's some simple things that could be like translate to people really, really taking ownership and feeling good about the experience. That's going to that's going to shift and translate the way they look at treatment. When when I think about like my own treatment and I think about the land and how it's tied into, especially like I, I think I think everybody needs to be tied or feel some sort of affinity to to look at nature and kind of see themselves in that. I stayed in the five block radius for about oh god eleven years. I didn't leave that five block radius. You know my dealer was there, the corner store was there, the place where I stayed was there, where I made the money was right there. I didn't need to leave and I never left. And I got an opportunity to go to Kamloops and I did. And I took the opportunity. What made this whole thing magical and and when I decided to go to treatment was that I saw rabbit footprints in the snow and I forgot that like this whole, this whole me of living in that five block radius forgot that there are animals living free in the wilderness and that there are trees and that there are living things out there other than myself and and the people that, the living things that I was surrounding myself with. I think we need to look at like those nuances and, and at all those factors of making people's treatment really, really an enjoyable and safe experience and going, okay, how, how can we see our way through this? And coupling it with the psychology, the counseling, the land-based healing, and letting people like decide how those things look. When I think of the treatment that that's in my mind, it's from where I'm from. They took an old campsite. It was like cabins that they used to rent out a long, long time ago. So it was really dilapidated and they fixed it up and it's on this beautiful lake. They want to make that a treatment center with our elders because it's near our community. So having our folks who are who are going through treatment in our facility um, where we're managing kind of their care and they're close to the elders, they're close to the land that their ancestors have been on for. You know, we have the privilege, we did, we weren't as displaced as some people. Like we're still on the land that we've been on for, you know, I don't know, like a hundred generations or something. So we, we weren't as displaced as other folks. We did lose a lot of land. Don't get me wrong, we did lose a lot of land and we did lose a lot of people, but we're still there. So. People are able to come to this treatment center and be on the land that their their great 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 grandmother have has lived on and has hunted and fished and they've they've touched that water. You know, there's something magical and so connecting about being there. I look at the the dream model of treatment would be kind of like that same sort of 
group therapy and one-on-one therapy, but being self-directed and people taking ownership of how that looks by going, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to lead the group today and I'm going to pick the topic and we're going to go and sit over there, you know, in the grass for today's session. I think people like having ownership of, of how the treatment looks and how the sharing in the, the aspect of what we're doing and where we're doing it is, is going to be important in the treatment because, again, it t- turns them back agency but gives them ownership over the whole process. Like, oh, I did the group today. I led the group and we talked about good family experiences growing up. You know, we talked about the good things and we stayed focused on those today for now. Because treatments are quite heavy and there's a lot of... I find people use substances for many different reasons, right? A majority of the times for Indigenous folks, there's moldy leftovers of colonization are there. A lot of times our addiction comes from trauma. And it's trauma that we've never dealt with or trauma that we don't know how to deal with. Or trauma that just is so deep and so hard to look at that that we can't even, we can't even bear to look at it. You know, treatment's hard and group therapy is hard and therapy in general is hard when you have all those kind of things there. But being able to take ownership of how that looks, I think is gonna be important. One of the issues that our community is dealing with right now is that we're finding it hard to procure like nurses and the counselors to come out. We do have counselors and nurses in our own community that are Indigenous, but often those folks are dealing with the same oppressions we are and the same barriers we are, and often they're caregivers for their extended families. So they're already kind of at max with the work that they can do. The work is there and it's well paid and you know you get to live in the beautiful nature for a while. We all know that the continuum of care is better if someone is there for the long run, but in reality's sake like living out in the forest is not for everyone and counselors and people in helping professions have a higher burnout rate because they do take a lot more on and it's natural to do that. I'm going to call out the government and I'm going to call out everybody else because like these dreams and these steps are going to take money and they're going to take people's time and they're going to take effort and um, paying people really well is going to be important, but giving as much money toward it as possible is going to be important as well. And, and not just the government, but everybody in general, you know, looking at opening our eyes and looking around in our community. Cause I always used to say this, you want to know the news, go look outside. Go walk around, talk to people in your community. Today we've heard from important voices on effective psychosocial approaches to treatment. And as we do in each episode, let's talk about how health providers could apply what we've heard. Christina, are there some clinical pearls that jump out for you? Absolutely, David. Today's podcast really highlighted quite a few important healthcare provider options for care. First of all, psychosocial treatment options are really diverse and include cognitive behavioral therapy, trauma therapy, contingency management, amongst a number of others. These treatment options may be effective alone and in combination with other supports such as pharmacotherapy or community-based programs. We recognize that the determinants of health play a significant role in the access to and effectiveness of these diverse treatments. 
While many psychosocial treatment options are offered by specialists, motivational interviewing is one effective option that can be delivered by primary care clinicians with appropriate training. Other psychosocial supports that aren't delivered by clinicians may also support client recovery or healing goals, including 12-step programs or culture-based interventions. Culture-based interventions for Indigenous people focus on cultural practices and Indigenous ways of knowing that provide a connection to and enhance cultural identity. To support success around psychosocial treatment, it's important first to center the relationship of yourself and the client. From there, ask the client, what are your goals? How do they relate to substance use and more broadly in their larger spectrum of their life? From there, you can offer the relevant treatment opportunities that match those goals. As Sarah and Sakani emphasized, having expansive ideas about what recovery can look like is important in recognizing people's full humanity. Thank you so much to both of our guests today, Sakani and Sarah Irving. And Christina, it was a pleasure to co-host this episode with you. Likewise, David. And to our listeners, you can find links to the studies we mentioned during the show in our show notes. You can also help us create the best possible podcast by filling out a short survey linked in our show notes. To learn more about the BC Echo on Substance Use, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. This program was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada and Doctors of BC. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use with the support of Cited Media. I'm Christina Chant. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Addiction Practice Pod coming soon.